Romans chapter 1, and I'll read verses 26 through 32 this morning as we conclude the first chapter of Romans. Let me show you how we got here. Romans begins with some biographical information that the apostle gives about his identity in Christ, and he tells who he is writing to, that's in verse 7, to the saints, those who have been transformed and know the gospel. And then he talks about his desire to visit them in verses 8 through 15. In verses 16 and 17, it's the Closest thing you get to a proposition or thesis in Romans, uh, Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. He defines it. It is the power of God for salvation. We talked about how the gospel is how you come in to the Christian life. It's the power for staying in the Christian life. It is the power that brings us all the way home. We never get beyond the gospel, only further up and further into it. And then in verse 17, we saw that the gospel in it is the righteousness of God is revealed. And part of this righteousness is his rightness, God's rightness. And that is better defined and explained to us throughout the rest of Romans, including God's wrath, verse 18, how that is revealed. And that leads us to verse, verses 26 through 32. And remember, I told you last week, to make a deal with me because verse 18, we begin an exploration of the anthropology of the human heart, and it is dark. It is a low valley, and I made you promise me that you're going to come up with us on the other side of that valley, which isn't until chapter 3, verse 21. So let's take this subject up, the depth of the depravity and sinfulness of the human heart, beginning in verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God... God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, Inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Let's pray together. Lord, as we explore this text together, we pray your Holy Spirit would supersede over us that we together might grow, learn, be challenged, and we pray that the truth that you have revealed in your scripture would be ours this morning, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. When I was growing up, my mom drove, this is back in 1980, my mom drove a Volvo 
240 station wagon. I'm sure engineers had in mind, let's create a box and put it on wheels. What made it worse, it gets worse. It was bright yellow. Bright yellow. I begged my mom, do not pick us up in the carpool line in this vehicle. And of course, she did and she would. And I was ashamed every day after school when they would call my name and this banana yellow box would pull up and I would get into it. But there was one redemptive factor behind this box on wheels. And that was the third row seat. And the third row seat, it didn't take much to impress us back then. The third row seat folded into the floor. I mean, this was science in its greatest uh, uh, example. And so we affectionately called this seat the tail gunner seat. Because on a B-17 bomber, the tail gunner is facing out the back, and in the very rear of this box station wagon was this seat that folded up from the floor like magic to us, and you would sit in it, and you would be facing the rear, and you would have this big station wagon back window behind you, and we decided we would put on some antics for other drivers, since we were at eye level with them. And there were different plays that we would put on and things like that. Very exciting. Very entertaining for other drivers. But my mom driving us, fortunately we are out of reach of my mom being in the third row seat. And I was there with a friend. She would tell us, you need, you need to cut it out. You need to cut it out. And one day we were on a longer drive there in Dallas. And uh, she told us to cut it out. And, and we continued being the rascals we were, and she told us again, my mom told us again, cut it out. And then finally she said, cut it out, or I'm going to pull this car over on the side of the road, and you are going to get out, and you are going to walk home. We were not in a good part of Dallas. We considered that momentarily and continued entertaining other drivers until the turn signal went on. And my mom proceeded to change lanes to get to the side of the road where she stopped. And she said, get out. <laughs> I realized that today's parenting, that's abusive. But back then, that was standard practice. And my friend and I looked at each other, and we evaluated the neighborhood and the situation we were in, and we immediately stopped. And my mom, furious, she would always tell us, I've had it up to here. Um, still mad, but she didn't make us get out of the car, and we drove on. And I tell you that story because I hope you had a mom that was firm in discipline, but right when it was on the edge and it could have gone either way, she was gracious.
And I want to tell you, if you know Jesus Christ, because we have in this text here in verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up. There is a time when the Lord himself has had it up to here and he will give people up. But if you are redeemed, you have no fear that God will ever make you get out of the car and try to walk home. God will never do that. You know, there is, and this is important because as we look at this text and we see the sin of homosexuality, we all need to understand that there is no sin so great our Savior cannot forgive. And that's good news for sinners like us. And so I want you to know that if you belong to Jesus Christ, now this is an understanding of biblical understanding of Christianity. This is not Christianity, I'm going to do better, I'm going to try harder, I'm going to earn my way to God. This is an understanding that God is so holy, it's impossible to be perfect. Therefore, I have to place my faith in the one who was perfect on the cross on my behalf and paid the penalty that I owed to God. If that is your faith, take heart. He's never going to let you get out of the car. He's never going to give you over. But we see that because a manifestation of God's wrath is that things come to a point where he will give them up. And we see the first instance of this in verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up. We see another in our passage this morning, verse 26, and then we see another one in verse 28. And as we consider this passage, what we're going to see is that God condemns homosexuality. That's very clear in this passage. It is a natural result, we're going to see, of suppressing the truth of who God is. But we're also going to see that God condemns a lot of other sins, too. That list that we have here in verses 28 through 32 So let's look first. God condemns homosexuality, and we're going to see why is this? Look in verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Now we have to ask the question, what's this reason? What is so bad that God would give people up, make them get out of the car? Go up to verse 25. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. What is happening here is that God is so great that the refusal to acknowledge and to obey him makes a person the target of wrath. God is that great that if we do not worship him, if we do not obey him and follow him, we are subject to his wrath. And what has happened here in verse 25 is not, there's not, this is not an apathetic ignoring who God is. This is an intentional suppression of who God is, exchanging the truth about God for a lie. And then There is this idolatry in the second half of verse 25, worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. The worship that should be in obedience and service to God has gone to something else, and this is an affront 
to God's greatness. So that's the reason. That's how bad it is. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Now, what does this look, look like? Their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. I'm in verse 26. So what has happened here when we see there's one exchange there in verse 25, and it leads to another exchange in verse 26, the natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Now what's happening here is God has an order to things that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. And what is happening is the dishonorable passions, the result of sin run amok, is to go against God's design for sexuality, God's design for marriage, which is related to, it's called the natural order of things. God has set this up to go a certain way. It is his way that we believe gives life, is most nourishing, most flourishing, most fulfilling to pursue his way of relationships. And what has happened is sin has come in and upset that from the inside out, beginning with the heart's passions running amok and contrary to what God wants. This also happens not just with women, with men. Look at verse 27. The men likewise gave up what natural relations, which we understand this is the correct way that God set into the created order, they, go up, uh, they gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. And this is further explained to us at the end of verse 27, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves a due penalty for their error. The shameless acts there are acts of indecency. And I'm, we're, we're trying to be G-rated today. Receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. What that means is forgiveness absolutely is available to those who turn to Christ no matter the sin. But what has happened is the consequences of that sin will continue to work themselves out and must be subject to the redemption of Jesus Christ. So the due penalty for their error, the consequences of rejecting God's perfect order of things, that sex is a gift, it is to be between one man and one woman in the context of a forever marital covenant commitment. So what happens is, as you, as you look at verses 26 and 27, and I realize these are some of what I think could, could be the most controversial uh, texts for the times that we're living in for 2021 are right here. But you understand this is the way things are going for, that begin with exchanging the truth about God for a lie and worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. What happens uh, what is the natural conclusion for sin? It's in verses 26 and 27, that it upsets and perverts human relationships and God's design. Now, you should know that 
as I say that, there are churches that have reversed course historically. We can think of Romans is written in 60s AD. We have seen in our lifetime churches reverse course from the biblical teaching uh, that, is, that is here. And what is at stake in that, because people would say, oh, Paul's old-fashioned. This is, this is chronological snobbery is what it is. It has always been taught in churches throughout history that homosexuality is sin, that it goes against God's design. And so what's happening here, uh, you really have to do some kind of ignoring the truth and the clarity of God's word to say that. When that happens, it's not about loving people. When a church affirms that which God forbids, that is not loving to people. It is not accepting to people uh, to do that. It's actually unloving because it denies the fact that this is the inspired revelation word of God and is without error. It all hangs together. If one part is wrong, then how can the other parts be true? And now I've made myself the great arbitrator of all truth, which is a huge problem that we're living with today. And I'm going to pick and choose certain truths rather than submit to God's word. Now, what people need is they need the Holy Spirit to open their eyes, the eyes of their heart to break through. And until that happens, they're not going to see the truth of what God is saying here. And so inerrancy is at stake, the doctrine of inspiration, how we understand the Word of God, a compromise in Christian sexual ethics, which is what's happening if a person says homosexuality is okay. Uh, what's happening there is it's, we're walking away from the Word of God. And there really is no hope once we've done that, once we've walked away from that authority. Now, that is the truth. And one thing I want to tell you about is there are a lot of encouraging stories out there because I mentioned at the beginning that God is not going to kick you out of the vehicle if you are in Christ. And there are many encouraging stories out there of people totally having their life transformed uh, within the context of leaving their homosexuality, finding Christ, and changing. And one such story is by Rosaria Butterfield. You might have read her story or you might know about her. One of the more prominent uh, figures in the gospel movement among former homosexuals, uh, Rosaria Butterfield. She was a liberal English professor. So I just a liberal lesbian English professor. There's, there's many degrees removed and descended in terms of the dishonorable passions there in that description. And she, through a letter, exchange of letters with a local pastor in a conversation they were having, she began to be drawn by the Holy Spirit to Christianity, but it was a long process. It's a long process, and the pastor would invite her over 
while she still considered herself a liberal lesbian English professor, would invite her over to share fellowship at the table with him, invited her to church. She would come. She was exploring and trying to figure out, what is this whole Christianity thing, and why am I drawn to it? And she records her thoughts in a book entitled, Unlike, uh, the book is um, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. And I commend you to read that book, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. And I think what it does is it gives us a playbook for living in times like we're living. And what are those times that we're living in? Look down in verse 32. We'll get there in a minute. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Have you ever, have you felt as a Christian, wow, you know, the, the circle's tightening. Uh, when will the day come with what I'm preaching right now being labeled as hate speech, being illegal? Would we see that in our, in our lifetime? Or will we able to, will we be free to proclaim the truth of God's word? And so Rosaria Butterfield is one. You need to look her up and see uh, the kinds of things that she's saying, how she's interacting, how she explains how Christ drew her. Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert is the book. There's two other ones I'll recommend to you. One is uh, Gay Girl, Good God by Jackie Hill Perry. Uh, Jackie Hill Perry, her book, one of the greatest articulations of the gospel that I've read in modern times is in this book, Gay Girl, Good God. Uh, another one, I haven't read this one, Rachel Gilson, Born Again This Way. Born Again This Way. And... Um, I recommend these, these to you to explore, to understand better uh, the challenges that we're facing in our day. And there's three applications I want to give you, three applications I want to give you regarding the issue of homosexuality uh, in our day, how we might, as Christians, interact with the world, stand strong, and love sinners as well. The first one is very important. We need to stop the self-righteousness. Stop the self-righteousness. You know, we as Christians are incredibly hard on people who are committing sins that we're not tempted by. That's pride, isn't it? You see, we are very quick to condemn homosexuality if, it, if we're not tempted by same-sex attraction or we're not tempted ever for uh, homosexuality. We're very hard on that, but we're not as hard on sins like anger, gluttony. What about not being generous in giving? These are all sins before the face of God. Yes, different sins affect people in different ways, but we have a tendency in this church and in our denomination to be extremely hard on people with sins that we are not uh, tempted by. So we need to stop the self-righteousness, realizing we all struggle with sin. And so stop the self-righteousness. By that, I mean, I'm going to mention this uh, so it doesn't happen. Um, 
after this sermon, there's going to be some who say, boy, Alan, go get them. There's going to be some that say, you weren't hard enough. You weren't forthright enough. You weren't clear enough that God condemns homosexuality, that homosexuality is a sin. You weren't, uh, however we want to term it, tough enough, conservative enough. There's some of you that would want to say that. Don't say that. That's really part of that self-righteous culture that we have. What if I got up here and I talked that way about gluttony, about uh, not properly taking care of creation, that God created it? Those are other sins as well. So just because we're maybe on a hot-button topic does not give us permission. It doesn't give us permission to condemn uh, other people and sort of be a cheerleader for this harsh version of Christianity. Now, we need to, and, and this, well, this leads us to our second application. We need to stop the self-righteousness. We need to start the compassion. We need to start the compassion. If that pastor wouldn't have had compassion on Rosaria Butterfield, how would she ever have learned that the gospel could offer her more than her lifestyle was? If you and I are so put off by sinners that we don't have contact with them or they're not allowed to come into this church and begin to get a sense of what God's love is and come into life-saving contact with the gospel. Uh, so we need to start the compassion. And what I mean by that is, I'm going back to that point, is there is no sin so great our Savior has not forgiven it. That is the good news of the gospel. And if you struggle with same-sex attraction, you need to know that help and hope is available right here in this church, that we would not so embarrass, we would not uh, betray confidences, we would be mature enough as a body that we would allow people to be vulnerable and say, this is, this is my struggle. Would you pray with me? Would you walk with me down this road? Homosexuality uh, in the church thrives because of an attitude of secrecy and because of lack of compassion that we ought to have for people. And so stop the self-righteousness, start the compassion. Third uh, application, we need to support teens and children. We need to support teens and children because they are really on the, they're, they're on the front lines. And that's what makes this uh, situation so tenuous. Those who perhaps are the most impressionable and know the least are the most forward deployed in terms of those they spend time with in the swirling situation regarding gender dysphoria and all manner of uh, sexual orientation, so-called sexual orientation issues uh, among peer groups. And so as parents, as church members, we need to get involved, loving teens, displaying to them God's design for marriage, for relationships, and we really need to support them, give them the categories they need, listen to them, 
uh, and show the example of what it means to have flourishing relationships with God. So those are three big applications. Stop the self-righteousness, start the compassion, and support teens and children uh, because they are the most forward deployed uh, here. So God condemns homosexuality. We see that clearly in verses 26 and 27. There's no way to avoid that. But you know what? He condemns a lot of other sins too. And what we have here in verses 28 through 32, we call this in New Testament studies a vice list. There is a list. And what we see happens, there's a cascading effect. Once you fail to acknowledge God as Lord, there's a cascading effect. Uh, Look at verse 28. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Verse 29, look at the list there. Unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, da-da-da, disobedient to parents. Why does that make the list? Well, it makes the list because, again, God has a order of things. And once you upset the order and the authority that is set in your life, all manner of chaos happens in a society. So, fifth commandment, honor your father and mother uh, here makes the list disobedient to parents. And then we see foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And then verse 32 I think the most apt description of our day. It was true in the 60s AD, and it's true now. Though they know God's righteous decree. Well, what does that mean? Do you remember we talked about general revelation or natural revelation, that you can look out in the created order and you can know that God is good? Remember I showed you my opposable thumb? We talked about the gelatinous blob up here that allows you to see all these rods and cones, if you don't know the greatness of the created order, if you don't acknowledge that, then you are condemned. And so they know something. They know enough about God from the created order. They can perceive that there is something greater at work. So though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, not only do they do them, but they give approval to practice them, to those who practice them. And I would offer you this, you know, there is no truce when it comes to homosexuality, meaning I used to think, well, well, that's not biblical, that's not right. You go over there and I'll be over here and live and let live. But do you notice it's changed really within the last five to ten years? And part of that change is because if you don't approve, and I would use the term if you don't celebrate that which God forbids, it is unaffirming to their personhood. So it strikes, if you don't have God and you're constructing a self apart from God, it cannot be live and let live because you are questioning by your non-affirmation their very personhood. They have adopted a sexual ethic as fundamental to who they are, and if you don't celebrate it or affirm it, you're going to be in trouble. 
And that's what's being said here. Give approval to those who practice them. Practice what God forbids. Well, where, where does that leave us? Where does that leave us? It leaves us where I hope we've always been and always will be, that Jesus is our only hope. That he is our only hope for the transformation and change. He is our only hope in terms of coming and receiving the love and the compassion that we truly long for. It's a call to repentance. It's a call to find hope and healing right here in this community because of who Jesus is. I'll conclude with this. The University of Kentucky, I thought this was funny. University of Kentucky, a couple weeks ago, back in March, sent 500,000 acceptances, acceptance letters, 500,000, half a million acceptance letters to a program that they only admit 40 students to. There was some kind of computer glitch. And so there was this elite program in healthcare management at the University of Kentucky that only takes 40 students a year, and they sent out 500,000 acceptances. They sent acceptances to those who didn't even know where the University of Kentucky is. They sent acceptances to people who hadn't even applied, not just to the program, but to the actual University of Kentucky. And what I want to offer you as they tried to clean up that mess and explain to those who had applied to the program whether they were accepted or not, we have a lot of confusion these days about what is acceptable and how to be accepted by God. And I think that's the greatest existential question of all time is how are we accepted in Christ? How we are accepted by God in Christ. And the fake acceptance letters really mirror the fake acceptance of an ethical position that makes homosexuality okay, that has moved where God wants us to be, to live, and to thrive. This fake acceptance, just like all those acceptance letters with the exception of 40 of them that went out, is fake. It's a fake acceptance from the world that we must reject to stay true to what God has called us to and to know that our acceptance is so much richer, so much deeper in Christ, that he will in no way, if we belong to him, tell us, you're walking home that he will receive us back, that he will take us all the way home. Yes, God condemns sin here in the starkest of terms. But the acceptance we have in Jesus Christ is still and forever always will be good news. Let's pray together. Lord, how we ask that indeed you would help us as your people to remember that we are sinners too. We struggle with sin. Though our sin may be different than others, 
rid our lives of self-righteousness. And we pray you would help us to be compassionate to people who struggle with sin and help us to be welcoming to people who are trying to figure out this whole Jesus thing that we would, without accepting or condoning their sin, we would commend to them the way of Jesus Christ and that we would be uncompromising and loving at the same time. Because, why? Because this is the way Jesus was and is. And we pray that by so doing, those who struggle with same-sex attraction would find hope right here at Trinity. We pray for those, all of us, who commit the sins in that vice list there would find hope, healing in our Savior. And we pray all this in His name. Amen.